Sup Freaks, it's your boy Marty here to introduce this episode of Tales from the Crypt. I have the immense pleasure of sitting down with a man by the name of Marshall Long, somebody who's been in Bitcoin for far longer than most people on this planet. He started mining Bitcoin in 2011 and has been on an insane journey since then. We sit down to talk about uh, that journey, some of the insane uh, stories he's he's created or developed along the way, particularly chips to China to inspect miners and make sure uh, that they were up to snuff for his operations and the characters he met along the way. Um, this was a fascinating episode for me particularly. Uh, Marshall has a perspective that I have not uh, been exposed to very, very often and has a unique view on China, what's going on there, the culture there, uh, the economy there, um, and a very nuanced view of of people on the ground, the Chinese citizens and, and the CCP. So I think you guys are really going to like this episode. Uh, this episode is brought to you by our good friends at the Cash App. You freaks already know all about them. They're helping us do many things. They're helping us stack sats. They're helping us stack slivers of stonks. If you want to, you don't have to, but if you want to, you can. All right. I know a bunch of you freaks yell at me for, for talking about the stonks. You know what? I'm going to keep talking about the stonks is you can do it via Cash App Investing now. If your favorite stonks are a little too expensive, Cash App Investing is letting you invest as little as $1. All right. Get over it. It's possible. Optionality exists. On top of that, they have their boost program. Uh, which allows you to get a very personalized debit card. They partner with merchants. You use that debit card at those merchants, and you save some money, and you can stack some sats with that money you save, if you so please, uh, because Cash App is directly connected to your bank account. There's no four- to five-day waiting periods. You can start investing today uh, and stacking sats today and using the Boost program today. Uh, Cash App Investing particularly is a subsidiary Square and member SIPC. Uh, and on top of that, they're, they're becoming their own bank. If you've already downloaded the app, you may have noticed that they're providing you with uh, bank account number and routing numbers, uh, and they're trying to help people uh, who don't have traditional bank accounts get access to the uh, to the Trump bucks. So doing great things all over the place, uh, stacking sats. Sats is the standard. Uh, it said somebody DM me the other day with an iPhone with iOS. Certain versions are... Um, are already have SAS to standard on iOS, so it's coming across the board. Hopefully, that auto DCA feature comes soon. Soon, TM. Soon, TM. That's all I can say. Um, but if you are, if you are, when you do download the Cash App, make sure you use the code Stacking Sats. That's one word: S T A C K I N G S A T S. You're going to get ten dollars, and ten dollars is going to go to our good friends at Owls Lacrosse in Chicago. I was talking to uh to Sam, who runs Owls Lacrosse in Chicago last night. He's not a big fan of that that dirtbag Al. He Al creeps him out too. Um, so Al, stop creeping people out, please. We're just trying to help here. Owls lacrosse. Enjoy this episode, freaks. I know I certainly did. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. 
Well, hey there, freaks. It's your boy Marty Bent here to introduce. What is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. It's your boy Marty Bent here, rounding out a, a heavy mining focus week on this podcast. We talk about mining every once in a while in the first two years of this podcast, but this last week, particularly, uh, this is, I think, I believe, our fourth mining focus podcast in the last two weeks. Uh, very excited for this one, particularly because we're talking to somebody who's been in the game for quite a while. I'd like to introduce you, freaks, to Marshall Long. Marshall. How are things going? Going well, Marty. Can't complain. Can't complain. Out here, locked down, playing video games like a freak does. What uh, what games you playing? You know, a little Overwatch, a little Rocket League, a little, little bit of Modern Warfare here and there. You play on Twitch? I remember uh, do some research before hopping on the, the mic with you. I listened to the Hash Rate podcast. Great podcast if you freaks haven't listened to it yet and you're interested in mining great mining focus podcast uh you're talking about twitch and esports and how you think that's the future do you, do you dabble in the twitch game yourself yeah i mean we've got um players that stream and stuff like that i uh i usually infrequently stream on uh twitch i'm more of just kind of a, a casual filthy casual gamer streamer here and there you know yeah no i'm i'm this quarantine has uh, had me questioning whether or not I should get back into gaming. It's been quite a while. Um, definitely it's a good reprise, that's for sure, man. I uh, I can tell you that I would be in a much worse place now than uh, if not, that's for sure. Yeah, it's fucking nuts, man. Yeah, we were talking about it. It's, we could be doing this for a while, which is a scary thought, but probably best to mentally prep for that. It is a possibility. Well, never has it ever been more socially acceptable to be a degenerate gamer than now. So take the chance <laughs> while you got it. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's yeah. It definitely is my uh, opportunity to get back into it. But we're here to talk about Bitcoin and mining overall. Yeah, who knows? We might drift into other conversations as well. Um, again, like I said, I'm excited to talk to you. You've been in the game for quite a while. Uh, you started mining in 2011. Is that correct? I got in late 2010. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what were you doing before uh, you got into Bitcoin? How did you find mining particularly? Yeah. So immediately before I um, was working on some app development with a buddy. Uh, and then just before that, I was a uh, engineer doing design work for um, paint spray booths uh, back in Texas. So from there, I went and started designing apps and stuff just like because I got a passion for programming, and then uh, one of the one of my buddies that was working on the apps with me told me over lunch one day about this new weird nerd money that you could find with your computer, and uh, I didn't know anything about the financial implications or you know I'm just a, a country boy, I didn't know anything about finance or any of that stuff, and so I just kind of went down the rabbit hole from the aspect of uh, you know this is strictly something cool and nerdy that I was interested in and that's it. Building apps. What, uh, what languages were you working with particularly? Uh, the one we were working on at that current time was just, uh, objective C at the time. Um, Swift was, I think just coming out. So, um, it was for a, a golfing app. You're trying to track the head of a putter with an iPhone and uh, a little bit ahead of its time at the, processors weren't uh what they are now so um that was a, a nice time to pivot i think 
<laughs> no, it's uh, yeah. Well, I'm trying to think of like what the camera quality of the iPhone was even back then. What version was it on back then? Like three? Is it an iPhone three? Uh, yeah, may, I think it was around the time of the four and four S actually. Yeah. Yeah. And so when you got into mining, was it still CPU or GPU starting to get on the scene at this point? Um. Yeah. So around the time I got involved, just kind of like passively. I started with the uh, CPU stuff and then it quickly right as I was getting into it switched over to GPU and then very quickly after that was the FPGA stuff um FPGA's kind of stuck around for I don't know maybe about a year or so from companies like Butterfly Labs and then you had ASICs coming out um and then from there it was just all ASIC stuff What was your what was your strategy like early on acquiring this hardware? Were you looking for beat up used stuff or were you buying off the rack so you could last longer? Or was the, 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 uh, yeah, from the onset, like I said, I didn't have any kind of forethought into this thing. I was initially like, Oh, I can get graphics cards for free. That's so cool. And, uh, so I would go on Craigslist during the GPU days and, you know, gaming computers at that time had a really crap secondary market and so i was able to buy nice gaming computers um and and use those and then when litecoin launched um i was able to reposition those to mining litecoin and then uh you know altcoins kind of picked up from there litecoin asics launched and then i think we switched those gpus to feathercoin probably just like a spinoff of Litecoin. And, um, and of course, we went headfirst into the ASIC stuff. So at some point, we were doing GPU and ASIC mining for uh, maybe about a year or two. And then the reality is ASICs are just so much easier to manage at scale. So we just kind of fell off the GPU train after um, probably right around 2013. Why, uh, why do you think they're easier to maintain or why are they easier to maintain a scale i mean in general the uh with the full computer you have so many other things you have to deal with like windows updates or linux updates and driver issues and uh you know being able to if you want to the, the greatest thing about gpus at during our time when we were super heavy into them was that you were able to run a lot of profit switching right when all these altcoins first came out. So we can mine Litecoin or Feathercoin or Monero or whatever. Problem is the cost of doing those things goes up. So in order to mine, let's say Ethereum, you had to have more RAM on your computer than uh, you would with just like a Litecoin rig. Same thing for Ethereum. Um, and so, you know, Upgrading was a huge pain in the butt because once you get over, you know, even 50 computers and maybe 200 graphics cards, uh, it, being able to manage all those is a lot harder because you'll have driver failures and it's a lot harder to diagnose what's actually going on um, because we're running all custom BIOS firmware that either we developed or we found online. And I mean, I'm not, you know, super hardcore I'm not a graphics card developer, right? Like I don't, I don't know how to write graphics card architecture, so I couldn't figure out what's here or there. And it just becomes a pain in the butt if you really want to scale up hardcore. And I have buddies even today that run thousands of graphics cards and 
they have specialized tools to help them with that. We just found it easier to run ASICs after about 2013, 2014. So you're still on that ASIC train? Uh, yeah. ASICs. So right now we exclusively mine Bitcoin. Nice. Um, you want to disclose, are you willing to disclose where you're doing that uh, across the world? Or? Yeah, sure. So we launched a new data center in Canada um, about a month ago. We launched and we're launching another one in the States uh, currently. That'll be live this summer. And um, you guys, uh, yeah, I don't want to prod too much. I know how some miners like to keep it close to the chest, but like, what uh, what energy sources are you guys using if, if you're willing to disclose that? Um, yeah, sure. In Canada, it's uh, mostly renewables. And in the States, um, it's just straight grid power, so whatever's available. The one in the States is uh, much bigger, so we're not – able to exactly pinpoint exactly where the power comes from so nice and so is your decision to mine bitcoin only just because of the simplicity of using asics at scale or is it more you said you didn't get into it you didn't know about finance or money originally have you sort of come around to the uh potential monetary revolution that bitcoin represents or? yeah i started really getting involved um after the price fell in 2013 it was super boring i mean the price for like uh, maybe even a week or two was like $180 after 1200 bucks. And I was like, Oh my God, and it was a huge nightmare. And from at that point, a lot of conferences had started to start going to conferences more and learning and um, started to really get involved. And I, I didn't know people were mostly unbanked outside of the States. You know, I wasn't well-traveled at that point. So um, around that time, I got super interested in the financial aspect of Bitcoin and um, started doing more research around how the government's just like just super crooked, to be honest. Um, started learning about, you know, market manipulation, especially around like the silver market. It was a huge market manipulation not too long ago and uh, started getting more involved in researching why people why gold bugs are super into gold and uh yeah from there it just seemed to be and is now currently something that i really enjoy doing is digging into the financial side of it because really at this point banks are ponzi schemes run by morons let's be honest no i mean so that's Especially how I, there's no reserve rule now right so these, yeah, it's gone it's not even fractional reserve banking it's just banking i guess yeah i would argue like it has been fractional even fractionally reserved for a while it was just yeah. semantics that they took out of the uh took out of the uh the fed's speeches uh very likely and policy now and that's how i found it was from a finance angle like i work i worked at a fund and my job was to follow these central banks and write commentaries on why they were making the policy choices they were and why currency markets were moving based off those policy decisions and in that early age like 21 22 i really learn quickly that these assholes have no idea what they're doing and yeah it's all it's all a game a facade and it's really evil at the end of the day when you think about how money's created oh yeah uh, in the current banking system 100 percent. and uh, it's interesting the one of the people that works uh in the building we live in he was asking me about credit and stuff and it's the best way to boost his credit this was just last week and i told him you know credit's okay for now but when you get to a point where you don't need credit just don't worry about it. He's like, what do you mean? I was like, dude, think about it. Credit is a tool used to enslave people and let people buy stuff that they really can't afford. 
And so that allows the price of everything to be so much higher because people can attain stuff without actually owning it. He's like, oh, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's not – if you just bring it to people's attention, they immediately understand it. Everybody's being screwed left and right. Yeah. No, I mean, and if anything, this quarantine is really driving that home. Most people are living paycheck to paycheck. Don't have, yeah, man. Don't have a two weeks amount of money saved up, let alone potentially six to eight months if, if we're forced to stay stay home and not work. It's uh we're in a very weak, precarious situation and we're finding it out in a, a pretty terrible way. Yeah, and the what's really a joke is the government thinks twelve hundred bucks is impactful. That's the number one thing. Number two thing is I mean, there were already cracks. A lot of people like to tell me, Oh well, you didn't know that the virus is going to come and wreck the financial system. No, but there were already cracks in the financial system before we even got here. That's the reality. And this is just kind of speeding up the process. Um, I feel grateful that I've been preparing for a moment like this for the past two years or so with, with this exact kind of this meltdown I felt it's coming in the next five years. So I feel grateful that I was prepared. However, many people aren't. And now unemployment's like through the roof. So, you know, it's going to get worse, a lot worse before it gets better, especially once everybody's, once there's a vaccine even, I mean, things will still be really, people just. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, it's a weird time. I, Bitcoiners talk about it a lot too. Like Bitcoin is like a fourth turning technology and uh, Bitcoiners and gold bugs alike have been prepping for a moment like this. And like you said, yeah, the virus wasn't, the cause for all this it, it was the match that lit the fuel that's been building for decades i would argue at least five decades since we went off the gold standard arguably a century since the federal reserve was was created and enforced upon us um do you think people wake up to bitcoin because of this you think more people are questioning it i can tell you that if they don't now they never will to be honest and uh you know, Bitcoin was spawned in a, in a similar time in 2008 and a similar economic time. And a lot more people know about Bitcoin now than they did, uh, thanks to the 2017 run up. Um, the price, what I'm going to use in air quotes, stability right now compared to the equities markets right now is really interesting. And I think it bodes well for the future. Um, but I will say if, if Bitcoin over the next, I don't know, 24 months doesn't really take some kind of meaningful hold outside of price, right? I'm, I'm not even worried about the price. But once the economy really starts feeling the effects of the inflationary acts, if Bitcoin doesn't shine, I don't think it ever will. But it's starting to show that already. Yeah, I mean, the amount of people that are taking their Trump bucks and buying Bitcoin uh, was pretty surprising to see. That's the other weird thing about the Trump bucks, like people who don't need it are getting it and then buying Bitcoin with it. Um, but yeah, uh, no, I think the cutoff was if you make over a hundred k, if you filed over a hundred k last year on your taxes or something, you don't get it. Which and that's a lot of people who didn't, right? So yeah, no, it's uh very again very interesting times. No, I agree. I think right now is the very right moment for people to sort of turn to Bitcoin and and learn more about it. They may know about it from 2017, but now I feel like people are going to be diving more into it and trying to learn and actually understand it this time around where 2017, maybe this is a good segue into like what the mining world was like around then. And even though you would have been in, 
transition to ASICs, but 2017, people were just like trying to make a shit ton of money. Now, hopefully, people oh, are yeah. trying to fix the money. Sure. I mean, 2017 was kind of a meme, right? Everybody <laughs> and their dad. I remember very specifically, I was working, um, doing some consulting work on the side uh, for a company that's in the crypto space. And the CEO came in one, one morning on a meeting. He was like, my taxi driver on the way here tried to get me to buy Bitcoin. I think I'm calling the top. And it was sure enough, you know, like a month later, everything kind of started going down. But uh, that's a good thing in the fact that way more people know about it. I mean, I can remember very specifically in the early days, I would just not tell people that I had anything to do with Bitcoin because I didn't know if it was illegal or, you know, I, I would tell people around like 2013 when the first run up started happening, people would say, Oh, that's drugs. Right. Like, Oh God. Cause that's all they've heard about it. But now, um, it's very rare that you go somewhere and somebody doesn't know what it is at, at, to some degree. Right. Or I've heard of it. So, yeah, no, let's pull on this thread a little bit. Uh, how have the different manias uh, changed and evolved? So like the first all coins, like pure coin, name coin, all that shit. Uh, then the ICO bubble. Uh, how did those two compare? And, and what do you think the next one looks like if there is a next one? Or do you think people wise up about that? Well, I think the the first kind of like new thing outside of Bitcoin I, I mean, I think it still is pretty cool. Namecoin having a decentralized DNS service. I think it's cool. Um, there are some interesting products that have been built on top of it. Um, but it never really got the chance to kind of shine, I don't think. Um, just because I don't think maybe people want that for whatever reason. Um, the very first attempt in the early days to make something new was an interesting and exciting time. Um, but you didn't see the amount of places to trade these assets, right? Like I used to be a, a trader on, uh, thankfully I was able to skirt Mount Gox mostly because of my own laziness. But, uh, why is that? Well, in order to set up a Mount Gox account, you had to, um, deposit in order to set up like the U S dollar type stuff. You had to set up an account with a PayPal competitor called Dwala, and Dwala. The way it had to work is you set up the account and you linked it to Mt. Gox and the Mt. Gox would send like very small one cent or two cent deposits to your Dwell account. And then your Dwell account would send one cent or two cents deposits to your bank account and you had to verify those deposits and it usually took a week or two. So I went through all that and then right before I was going to start sending Bitcoin to Mt. Gox to start trading, Mt. Gox's Dwell account got seized by FinCEN, I believe, and it was... 10 or 20 million. I don't remember the exact number, but their dwell account got seized. And I was like, well, all right, this seems super sketchy. Maybe I'll just try to find some other place to trade. And so I ended up switching over to um, BTCE and I use BTCE a lot, but I didn't really use the dollar side of things. I was just trading the altcoins. And that's where I first got interested in, you know, things like Purecoin and Namecoin and Litecoin because a new trade pair would pop up every so often. You're like, oh, what's this? And then you start doing research. Oh, it's mineable. Okay, cool. Check it out. And then, you know, Novacoin, the first like stakeable coin. So I learned a lot from from the, the trollbacks on BTCE, to be honest. 
PTC RIP. PTCE was a Russian <laughs> exchange that got seized, I believe, by FinCEN or the FBI as well. Yeah. Because um, yeah, there's theories out there that they were helping launder Gox coins, right? Oh, I, I'm sure they were at some point, right? Because, I mean, in the early days, there were, there's like Trade Hill, right? There was Gox, BTCE came up shortly after that, Bit Instant, Charlie's thing, and that was really it. So, you know, I at that point, I wasn't going to give anybody a whole lot of information if I didn't feel comfortable. And so I just got on an account that didn't require me to validate any kind of information at all. And I just went to town. Yeah. That's fascinating how Wild West it was. And I'm happy you mentioned Namecoin. Even though like, it is a cool idea, uh, it really highlighted how competitive uh, hashing is, especially SHA-256. Um, that's that's why it failed inevitably, right? It shared the same hashing algorithm as Bitcoin, and you have miners competing, um, or you have hardware competing, uh, or those chains are competing for the hardware running that that hash function and so yeah. did you did you notice that in real time like, well uh, they the developers for namecoin quickly pivoted to merge mining from namecoin and bitcoin so then they were able to save that quickly because most of the pools at that time would just integrate that into their pool server so most of the pools were merge mining namecoin and then the real problem came was they weren't passing that on to the miners and they were just merge mining it on their back and then this selling all the name coin they would get because it was just extra money. And so there was so much sell pressure that it eventually killed it off. Yeah. That's fascinating. So what was it like, like learning the dynamics of these hashing markets, I guess, as you were, as you were going on and was it a baptism by fire? Did you foresee any of this stuff or was it a lot of, Oh shit, this is how this works. I should adapt accordingly. Well, it was kind of around the time like Butterfly Labs came out with their thing. A lot of stuff was happening at the same time. I can remember the first time thinking, man, Bitcoin could be something very serious when I was walking around the mall with my now wife and I was on BTCE on my phone, just like, you know, kind of day trading a little bit because I don't want to shop around the mall. And I saw the price bouncing up, you know, 30 bucks, 40 bucks, 50 bucks, 30 bucks, 20 bucks, 50 bucks, just like up, down, up, down super quickly. And I'm like, man, this could be super huge. Imagine if this thing could get to like $200. How crazy would that be? And me thinking, I wish I knew more rich people to get them involved in Bitcoin. Because at this time, I didn't have any money. My parents didn't have any money. Like I didn't know anybody. So um, fairly early on, I, I could see the potential from a price standpoint uh, and, and nothing beyond that, Bitcoin. But when all the other coins started coming out, being able to transfer hardware to those other coins was interesting. But then I started to dig into the, the, the higher tech stuff, like the FPGAs that Butterfly Labs put out. Um, those were decent. And then all the issues around when their ASICs launched, having huge shipping delays. And I actually forgot that I pre-ordered one until like it came like eight months later, came in a box and there was like, a, it looked like somebody put a Coke can on it. It had like a, a Coke can ring on the top of it. <laughs> I plugged it up and I was immediately like, wow, this thing's really cool. And, uh, then like the next week I sold it cause they were going for double on eBay. 
and then the grid seed miners came out and that was super cool because you could mine bitcoin and litecoin at the same time with one asic and that was super interesting and then i got into hardware hacking because of those because if you cracked them open you could do some voltage mods and get more hash rate out of them and then all the rails kind of came off and we went real deep into the asic mining world yeah it is interesting still to this day people tinkering at the firmware level just to try to eke yeah. out crazy efficiencies because it is mm-hmm. uh the podcast i dropped yesterday uh austin storms has been in the game not as long as you but he's been mining since like 2013 described it perfectly well like it's ruthless capitalism you have to get to the lowest cost possible for your That's operations right. if you're going to win this and you mentioned that on the hash rate podcast adam back telling you uh, yeah, the chicken, the chicken, chicken shack. shack data center, man. That's right. And it's an arms race too, right? Like if you don't have, and, and that's why a lot of people from 2017 got absolutely smoked because they overbuilt and they bought the wrong stuff to try to save CapEx and I ended up biting them in the butt. So it's also an arms race in the fact that you got to time, you got to have some insider knowledge on what's going on on the chips across all the manufacturers and any new manufacturers that crop up. Um, you know, logistics chains is important to consider. Like if you want to buy from Bitmain right now in volume, you got to get it from Malaysia. If you want to buy from What's Miner right now, that's a different process and you got to know their lead times so that you can time your upgrade cycles along with the current network issues right now. So it's more of a arms race and the fact that you need the newest gear but when do you pull the trigger on that new gear and that's kind of become an art form at this point yeah that's something uh we've learned as well as is it's in the hard way like we uh, a company that i work for uh, we started our mining journey at like the height in 2017 it's like how do you i wasn't part of it then i have come on later but it was like ah we've got all this bitcoin that we've we've made from ad revenue like what do we do with it let's let's buy miners and figure out what to do <laughs> with them thinking you could just like plug them in mm-hmm. yeah and you find out they're a jet engine basically <laughs> right <laughs> so that's loud. yeah no that's fascinating because you mentioned it earlier you weren't well traveled before before bitcoin but it seems like it sent you on this this crazy journey to far off land so yeah, what, really what's that crazy, been man. like i'm really grateful to bitcoin because it's uh, really changed my entire life. I mean, I'm, I'm from a super small town in Texas. Uh, my graduating class of, in high school was like 50 people. Um, you know, I now I've got friends all over the world. I've been to, I don't know, probably 30, 35 countries, maybe 40 at this point. Um, you know, I'm almost trilingual now. And it's, it's, really been interesting to be able to see the how different people operate because i had a very narrow view of the world at at that time and uh i mean to some extent i still do right like i i've been to a lot of western places i've been to china a whole lot um asia a good bit but i haven't been to south america a whole lot i haven't been to africa at all and uh it's bitcoin has really kind of helped me develop interpersonally for sure. Um, and I'm super grateful for that. And it's, uh, it's given me a lot of cool stories to tell too. That's for sure. 
You got any cool stories you want to share right now? Like what's the what's the weirdest situation you found yourself on these travels for, for the mining? <laughs> and I've I've been in a whole lot. I mean, that could be a whole five part series to be honest, but um I don't know, man. Probably the super the weirdest one was one of the times I went to China. Um buddy of mine wanted me to go check out some a warehouse of ASICs that he was trying to ship to me and I wanted to see him in person before he shipped them. And he said, all right, fly to Shenzhen. There'll be uh, a lady there to pick you up. I was like, all right. And at this point I didn't speak hardly any Chinese and I, I, I speak okay Chinese now. I'm not fluent by any means, but um, I get to the airport and there's two guys randomly standing somewhere and they just say, come with me. And generally when in, people do that they want to take you in like some fake taxi or something try to charge you whatever and so i resisted for a while but they kind of manhandled me and just kind of put me in a car and i was like all right this is weird so i'm texting my buddy and i'm like hey man you said a lady was going to pick me up this is two really young dudes am i in the right place he didn't text me back and they're just driving and so like it was like 30 minutes go by and i'm like what is going on 45 minutes go by still no text from my buddy and so i'm starting i'm sweating I'm like, I don't know what's going on. Finally, he texts me back. Like an hour we've been driving. He's like, yeah, it's two guys. Sorry. I'm like, okay, cool. At least I know I'm in, the, I'm in the right car. But they're like taking me way off the beaten path, like back some weird alleys and stuff. And and uh, But he said it's two older guys, and these are two younger guys. So I'm like, okay, I still – like there's no way that this warehouse is literally in the middle of nowhere with like a whole bunch of – miners that i need to inspect and so i'm still freaking out walking up these stairs into this warehouse and we go through the first set of doors and all kinds of weird stuff in this warehouse man like in the right hand i can remember there being like a stack of like mammoth tusks that people were breaking down for like chinese medicine or something like elephant tusks and then there's like a dude in the back left corner like just randomly grinding metal laughing his head off and i was like i'm gonna die here this is so sketchy. And then <laughs> there's randomly like giggling at me and then running away. And I'm like, dude, this is like a horror movie set. Like what's going on. And so I freak out and I'm running down this hallway, just like opening doors to see if I can find miners. Cause if I can't, I'm out. And finally I open a giant room of miners. I was like, oh, thank God. This is the right place. They're not trying to kill me. Cause nobody spoke English. I didn't speak any Chinese. My translator wasn't working like my translator app on my phone. So yeah found the miners it didn't die it was a good day holy shit i don't know <laughs> if i would have i would have probably pissed myself and ran out of there yeah it was i'm searching for them <laughs> my, my blood pressure was up man it was whew, scary so what ha what happened when you finally got the miners somebody like, oh it's you I, I found i found the miners so i was like okay these are the right guys and they're just looking at me like what is wrong with you why are you sweating so much number one and why are you freaking out and uh, so I opened the boxes and kind of reviewed them and, you know, kind of tested to make sure everything was good. And, and I said, okay, let's go. And then I got back in the car and went to the airport. <laughs> that was it. So it was like a three hour round trip. Yeah. Back to the That's airport. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. Fuck, man. <laughs> and the miners were worth it, obviously. Yeah, it was fine. It all, all panned out. Yeah. Shit, man. Fuck, it's crazy over. There. I mean, I've never been over there. What's it? What's it like? 
Um, I, I can tell you, man, China has changed a lot. So the first time I went to China, I think was 2013, 2014, maybe, um, was to develop. I started developing firmware for miners around then. And I was helping with one of the first sets of Litecoin ASICs at that time. And um, uh, b- believe it or not, it was in Wuhan. And the first place I went in China was Wuhan, uh, where apparently coronavirus came from. But uh, being able to see China from that point till now, it has changed so much. The culture, the people. um, Back then, it felt people were a lot more kind of about themselves. Because the thing that most people don't realize, just how many people are in China. If you think about it, it's like one out of six people in the world is in china not chinese in china and there is just so many people that if you don't kind of look out for yourself and be selfish to some extent like you'll die there's just that many people um however that mentality is uh, rapidly changing i've seen a lot of cultural shifts in uh the big cities for sure um even when i went back recently in december um it really felt like a whole different place, man. It's really cool to see how the culture has changed from being a, a mostly kind of inward looking culture to now. I mean, I actually had people like open doors for me in China. I mean, that doesn't even happen in Boston. Right. So it's, it's, uh, and that's not like me feeling that it's different because I'm white and privileged. It's me just like literally sitting outside a restaurant and just like, seeing what's going on around me people are the the mentality of the people is changing um it's really cool to see man i can see people being more caring towards each other and especially now the 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 work that they've done during lockdown has been very impressive the the amount of respect that they're giving each other it's really cool to see man it's interesting i mean and as to be completely honest i'm somebody who's been railing against the ccp last few months uh, do mm. their, from what I deem, handling of the of the virus to be like sketchy and probably made it worse, um, just from not sharing information hourly. But that's the sure, CCP. totally. Well, the you CCP can do things Chinese in China people, that though. you can't do, right? You can do things in China you can't do here, right? So, um, my my wife is Chinese, and and so we have firsthand account of what it took when they were actually on lockdown, and they were like, if we even go outside, like we go to prison, like as soon as we. St- step out the front door like we're done and now if you wear a mask out if you don't wear a mask outside you get in trouble so it's like there are things that you can do in china that you can't do here that really helped them kind of stamp out coronavirus to some extent i don't believe that there's no more outbreaks there but the you know the extent that they went to locking down the country is definitely not something that you could do here so i will say that uh, and like this, it's interesting. What do you prefer? You want an author- authoritarian government that can really get stuff done? Or do you want to have personal liberty? And this is an interesting kind of thought experiment I've been having with several of my friends, especially Chinese friends that are like messaging me daily, like, are you dead yet? Is everything okay? And they feel a lot of national pride now that their country has been able to, to a large extent, control the, the pandemic inside of China. So it's really interesting now. And I think this might be signaling the end of, you know, the American capitalistic monolith now compared to, I think at the end of this, you'll start to see 
China really taking over from like a economic powerhouse standpoint, because now there's a huge sense of pride inside of China um, that they've been able to kind of do such a good job and even a, a strong sense of community internally, you know, people are really trying to look out for each other and stuff, mostly from what I've been seeing. And again, I'm, I'm, I don't know everything about China. This is just my opinion. What I'm seeing, a lot of people will be like, "Oh, he's white. He doesn't know nothing about China." And, I mean, to some extent, that's true. But um, this is just my observation. I think it's it's going to be interesting for sure. I think uh, this might be the beginning of the end of the U.S. powerhouse. We'll see how the inflation goes. But and we'll see, right? And that's. I mean, this is fascinating because I I've been on the complete opposite of that. Where I think interesting. I mean, at least the West, and that's why I'm happy to speak with you as sort of an insider view of what's going on in China. As I've been, obviously I have a Western view of the world and a Western frame and uh, data source, right, mm-hmm. or data stream. And I've been saying and have talked to people who believe like this is gonna, this virus particularly is gonna have people turn away from China and like shift supply chains home, which may not be best for them in the long run. And it could be. Yeah. However, China is really good at a lot of different things. Um, you know, the education system in China is, I mean, just like regular schooling is way better than in the States, that's for sure. But beyond that, the way they approach post-high school education is interesting. It's, you know, a lot of people will go to a traditional, like a Harvard-type deal. There's a big prestigious university in Beijing called Tsinghua, and um you know, a lot of people go there. However, the people who can't get into those schools in the state, you just don't go to school, right? You just, you're a mechanic or something, uh, focused school. And so there are people in China who can do things that we can't do in the States. And I'll give you a good example of that. When the Apple Watch first came out, um, the crystal on that watch, the, the what looks like a glass piece on that watch, the screen it's actually made out of sapphire and the the edges are rounded in a way that a lot of people tried to criticize apple in the west saying like oh there's no way our simulations can grow sapphire in this kind of shape and this curve and here's our proof and blah 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 but when it actually came out that whole thing is made out of sapphire because there were people who were trained specifically on growing crystalline structures in china at foxconn that were able to develop that in such a way that it worked. And so um, that's something that you can't take out of China. It's really hard to export that kind of talent because it's just been in their, their culture for so long that there are people, a lot of people in China who can do stuff that nobody else in the world can do. So right now China's on lockdown, right? You can't go into China right now as a foreigner. Um, but I don't think that there's going to be a way that you can export that kind of talent in such a large volume that it would shift the paradigm. Interesting. Fascinating. So like more like trade focus specialization that you don't see anywhere else. That's right. Fascinating. Getting back to like, that's something I, I've actually thought about a lot. Like my sister is a ceramicist mm. and I wish she was just able to focus on that alone and nothing else and mm-hmm. just master that craft. But uh, yeah, like you said, the American schooling system doesn't allow for that you need they want well, it's also the economy want. right like in china there are very few things that are super expensive cars are pretty expensive housing 
And most people like you, you can't buy land. You can't own land unless you live out very, very in the outskirts, like very far away in the countryside. So the only things that are, those are mostly the only things that are expensive, everything else, food, you know, the, the essentials are super cheap. And if you don't have a job, the government, if they don't have any available for you, they will create one for you. So the focus of people is much different than here, right? What you worry about every day, what I worry about every day is something different than what people in China might worry about every day because of the government structure. So, you know, people might have more time. They have definitely less freedom. They definitely have, you know, a lot less than here, but they also have, don't have the fear of, you know, if your company blew up today and my company blew up today and we had to somehow burn through all of our savings and all our investments went to zero, what would you do? You would have to start all over, but that's not the case in a communist focused government. You can argue that China is mostly capitalistic and that's true on the economic side, but the government side, it's not. So, um, you know, it's a give and take. And, and by no means should that be construed that, Oh, Marshall Long thinks Chinese communism is awesome. It's not true. I'm a, I'm a libertarian and mostly I just want people to leave me alone and just let me do my own thing. But I mean, there's, there's, that's why the system allows people to be able to focus on certain things and getting super detailed on a few aspects. Yeah. Now again, it's infinitely fascinating and uh, that's always been my biggest wonder is there's like a huge shadow banking system. You have the, uh, like the ghost cities and stuff like that. Is this just oh, like yeah. a temporary, is this just like a temporary boon before an inevitable uh, collapse because mm. the system is just inherently fragile because of the top-down nature of the government. And, sure. Well, that and you know, I, I've been to ghost towns, man. I've been in 60-foot high-rise buildings that I'm the only person in. I mean, that's, that's, that? that's real. What was that it's, like, and why were you there? It's weird, man. It's super crazy. I was uh, – it was in northern China, and, I mean, that's just like a, a weird place to begin with. But, uh, you know, we were riding bikes inside the building, like – you could ride a dirt bike in there if you wanted to because there's nobody there. It's like a dude at the front desk that's sleeping all the time, and it's you, and that's it. And so uh, the reason that happened is because the government's trying to stimulate the economy, and they're getting like 7% GDP growth year over year during that time. And it's because you know a lot of internal corruption. This guy's giving his cousin the, the construction contract, and this guy's marking everything up so they can make more. It's a super – super corrupt system um not to say that that's not the case in the states but it's uh almost transparently corrupt so um it's uh it's a really weird feeling to be in a very large large building and you'd be the only person there so um you, but at the same time china's got other things down pat right like what? Like, uh, you know, like the manufacturing and engineering. Mm -hmm. A lot of, uh, I mean, there's electronics people in China that I've met that they have no. A lot of my Chinese buddies who worked at Amazon and you know, PayPal and Tesla and all these really great companies to work for. Some people argue Tesla's not a great company to work for, but they're leaving these companies to go back to China because they're making more and startups in China are the culture is very different. And they want to be a part of it. Yeah. 
It's fucking... so a lot of a lot of my Indian buddies are quitting jobs at Facebook and Google to go run big startups in in India. You know, so it's it's an interesting time for sure. It's very interesting. No, that's I mean, so do you believe in like the sovereign individual thesis that? nation states are going to break down into smaller and smaller municipalities, potentially citadels. And that's, and again, so that's what drives me crazy about China is like you just described as crazy innovation, especially at the app and engineering level. But are they forced to sort of build for the CCP and do we want like a social uh, credit system? And is it, is it dangerous to, even though it is insanely capitalistic in, in some sense at the end of the day, you can't route around the CCP and if we get that exported across the world, is that something everybody should live under and put up with? Yeah. And you know, that's, that's the question. And I, I by no means would want to live under that. Um, however, there are perks, you know, if, if, and I can tell you right now, I respect, especially now, like I respect people's right to go outside even when they're urged to stay inside However, that doesn't make you not an asshole, right? That's the reality. You go and you want to party with people and stuff right now. Like, it just means you're selfish. It doesn't mean you can't, and I respect your right to do that. That doesn't mean I I don't dislike you because I definitely do because I think it's selfish and stupid. So in this kind of give and take, uh, you can kind of see the that there's a silver lining to being so oppressed constantly. Yes, Every Chinese startup has a backdoor built in, full stop, period, end of story. So every message I send on WeChat, I know that it is being read by some machine learning algorithm that is flagging me for X, Y. That's why I have to watch what I say on WeChat. Um, I mean, even when you go in now, they have a facial recognition thing that you must register your face print with these cameras before you go through customs. So China knows where I am at all times. It's the most heavily pervasive CCTV country in on the planet. It is full lockdown all the time. They know where I am all the time. Is that a place I want to live? Hell no. Is that something that's super scary for like a post utopian society? Definitely. Uh, but you know, and I don't know why I feel the culture changing in China, but the social credit system might be part of it. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Is it the uh, the Black Mirror like click? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It it feels like that sometimes, man. But uh, every time I talk to my family about it in China, they they'll say we don't really have to worry about that anyway because we're not assholes. And that's true, I guess. But the the thing that I always hate is people say, well. Why don't you want to be watched all the time? If you're not hiding anything, you shouldn't have anything to worry about. I hate that because I don't really have a good retort to that. Besides, I don't want people watching me all the time. Um, Henry, just give me your phone. Let me read through all your texts and your pictures and exactly your passwords. Like, It's interesting in China, though, because everybody knows that it's going on. They're very uh, – I'm not going to say transparent about it, but it's very opaquely obvious that that's happening. And people know that. Um in the States, it's definitely happening, too. I mean, in England, GDPR, all this kind of stuff, GCHQ, like that's where the internet cables come into England is literally GCHQ. So um, 
mean, everybody knows it's happening. It's just, are you in a position to be able to protect yourself? Do you want to protect yourself? Most people are just so lazy, they don't care. And that's the scary part. Exactly. That's very scary. And that's it's actually, too, like how has Bitcoin survived so long in China, specifically the mining and all that? Do you see the government clamping down on Bitcoin, particularly they just announced their digital cryptocurrency uh, last week or earlier this week? Do you think they'll clamp down on or try to clamp down on Bitcoin usage within the country at any point? Right now, Bitcoin usage inside the country is a weird place. Um, I think it's a gray market right now. Um, however, all the major Chinese exchanges are kind of not Chinese anymore, if that makes sense. They have either shut down or moved their offices to like Thailand or something like that. Um the great thing about Bitcoin is we don't need anybody's permission to use it. That doesn't mean that, you know, there's pros and cons to a public blockchain too. If you want to do nefarious stuff, there's a lot of really good companies that are great at tracking this kind of stuff. So problem with the blockchain is it's there forever. And the best part about a blockchain is it's there forever. So it's kind of a double-edged sword at that point. But I, you know, it's nothing you can really do to kill Bitcoin at this point. So if the government decides to go one by one and axe every single data center in China, they'll just relocate and keep going. Yeah. You don't think the government could like forcibly take over all the data centers in China and try to 51% attack the network? Or? At this point, I feel very confident that less than 50% of the hash rates in China. So interesting. I'm not really number you hear number you're here thrown around a lot is like 60 to 70%. That used to be the case. Uh, however, a, a lot of stuff's getting spun up in like Kazakhstan, a lot of stuff still going in Sweden, Iceland, South America, even the States. You know, there's some big operations in the States. Canada's got some big operations. So, I mean, it's it's getting a lot more geodiverse now as uh, large players start to hone in on cheap power pricing. Yeah. I mean, that's what, again, we discussed it before we hit record company i work for that's i mean that's our main goal is to try to bring hash hash power to u.s soil particularly on oil fields and you have some mm-hmm. thoughts on on particularly particularly on mining on oil fields what uh you haven't shared them with me yet so i'm interested to hear yeah you know the biggest problem with like doing flare-off stuff is uh, two things number one like in order for me to go to a site right i think you have to take like a 24-hour osha class so you can't do like a lot of like, hey, come to this thing and check it out. Can't do like a lot of dog and pony shows if you're trying to like raise capital to investors. It kind of comes a problem. Uh, number two, it depends on your, like I said, it depends on the business model, right? Your business model is is not necessarily mining so much as it is trying to facilitate a need to kind of take control of the excess gas to allow them to con- continue to, to drill. Um, but that's not my business model, right? So my scale that I can hit as far as mining in one location is much greater than any kind of flare-off place that you could run in a safe, very large scale. Because at some point, that well will be capped or, you know, you're not going to be able to generate 200 megawatts from one well flare-off. It's just not, a, a, you know, a reality. And so your issue, if you really wanted to go super big, would be, finding more locations, more locations means more unique ways to manage those locations, having different people in different locations. So your, your OPEX is a lot higher than what mine usually is. However, my CAPEX is all upfront. 
right? So it's, it just depends on your business model, right? So that that's the only thing I'll say about, about Flare stuff. Yeah. No, I mean, we've definitely uh, noticed that those are hurdles to overcome. But yeah, it depends on who you partner with, right? And some, and that's the imp- interesting thing about drilling. So you drill a hole in the ground and maybe for six to eight months, you can have enough flare to do uh, maybe a hundred megawatts or something like that. But then after that, it's considerably reduced for the remaining life cycle of the uh, well pad. Um, well, we think we found an interesting scenarios. We're working with one oil company has got a lot of uh, well pads uh, pretty close together. And so that like you, that is uh, something we're, we're working to figure out and uh, think we're solving is, is how to, um, manage many disparate containers across oil an oil field um, yeah. where, you, where you don't have a data center where you can just send five people in the right one the other thing that, too is for oil specifically right biggest problem for mining in general at large scale is is the fact that there are so many variables that you must try to control and when you're a slave to another variable being oil price God, I cannot imagine that financial headache for a very long-term mining situation, right? Because the oil price goes down like it is right now. Like, tell me, are are people like shutting off? Like, what's 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 the deal in the field? Uh, where we are, the pad we're on is not shutting off. They are consolidating. They've decided not to drill any new holes. I believe. Um, I can't speak too much because the NDA stuff. Uh, but yeah, we are safe our operation it's relatively small just to be clear we haven't scaled up immensely yet um uh, is safe right now and for the foreseeable future from we we can tell um but yeah there that is definitely a variable to take into consideration that but that's where i think we think that we can come in and sort of help some of those uncertainties for the oil companies is hey uh, yes, you guys have price volatility uh, and you're wasting all of this gas. So that's where we're basically, again, flare mitigation, trying to help them get under emissions levels. And so they're just giving us the gas we're like, hey, if, if you can throw this through, uh, catalyze this, throw, throw it through an EPA uh, approved generator and reduce emissions and actually get value out of that, that helps us immensely. Um, and so that's the first step. And then eventually we'd like the oil companies to start investing in these mining ops. And that's our thesis is that they will start and they'll start to see Bitcoin as a sort of supplementary revenue stream to, to the oil stuff. So it can help when, um, when the oil prices is, is, is a bit suppressed. Yeah. I mean, I think if you can overcome the challenges of, you know, managing dozens of containers at the same time with limited overhead, I think that that's something that's potentially interesting for sure. Biggest problem is like if you spin up a hundred megawatt spot and then they cap that thing or reduce the the rate at which they're giving the gas out, then the question is, what do you like? How do you transport a hundred megawatts worth of gear? Right? Like it's a huge logistic nightmare. Yeah, yeah. No, that's part. I mean, again, I don't want to disclose too much, but container design and specifically making the containers portable is is very yeah very high Super on the mind. crucial yeah and then who, and then who you partner with is is mm-hmm. also very crucial as well um how oh, yeah. how well their business is run and whether or not they can weather these storms so again a lot of a lot of factors but it's fascinating and it is 
it would be a cool problem to solve and to actually that's why I yeah decided to to jump on this team and work for Great American Bodies because it's a big problem uh, and it would just be cool to be a part of the team that that helps solve it right um, sure I mean we've we've kind of talked about all kinds of stuff over the years where you know you could back up a container to like a warehouse and provide heat in the winter so that they could save on their power bills that kind of stuff um so yeah that that's what's great about mining is that everybody is working towards the common goal of getting their cost of production down and there's a lot of different ways to skin that cat and that's that's really interesting for sure yeah totally and that's um i'm just gonna say uh, I wanted to ask you, like, what are your thoughts on the foundries being in the chip chip fabs, uh, being so few and and located in, in one part of the world? Like, do you do you envision uh, America uh, or North America or maybe even South America investing in uh, a foundry, a fab factory uh, that can produce ASICs if if Bitcoin hits a certain threshold of importance? It's interesting, right? Um, I can tell you my answer is no overall, but the reality is I think there's not private foundries. I think there's three. You got Global, you got SMEC, you got TSMC. Uh, However, Intel runs their own stuff. Samsung runs their own stuff. there's a few analog foundries too. I think uh, Texas Instruments runs their own analog ASIC place. Um, and some of these companies have run Bitcoin ASICs for themselves. Um, it's interesting in the fact that a Bitcoin chip in general is not hard to design compared to a graphics card or a CPU. And the amount of brain power that's out there designing GPUs and CPUs right now is really interesting because they could easily switch over to designing Bitcoin ASICs if the price shot through the roof. Problem is foundries, the, the, the type of stuff that goes on in a foundry is so mind-boggling high-tech that it's insane. Like the TSMC, their foundry floor is... I think 12 or 13 orders of magnitude more clean than a surgery room, than an operating room. I mean, they're talking particle level filtration because the tiniest speck of dust on those wafers destroys it. So the the amount of technology that is being developed and utilized in a foundry will blow your freaking mind. And that's not a simple thing to just be like, oh, Bitcoin's a million dollars. Let's make a foundry. It's not going to happen. Just because these people have decades of experience, the technology is highly proprietary. Even if you have a foundry, you have to have access to the process nodes. So like if you wanted to make a five nanometer chip right now, you got to have Samsung's permission to do that. And they got to provide you the way to do that. So there's a lot of IP issues at play. So I can feel very certain to tell you that over the next five to 10 years, if a Bitcoin explosion happened, you wouldn't see anybody making a foundry for that. You would see people paying Apple to delay their iPhone chip tape out. You'd see people 
paying to get on the schedule ahead of AMD, ahead of NVIDIA to be able to produce their chips faster. That That's what I would see. Interesting. No, and so that's, you're alluding to sort of the way these foundries work, right? You rent space on their floor to build whatever you want to build. Particularly. Well, you rent space on the schedule, right? And there's a lot of Chinese yeah. hedge funds that will like buy the schedule. I know there's a Chinese hedge fund trying to buy the Samsung schedule to kind of thwart Bitmain's new stuff coming out. It's like a hedge fund and they'll resell parts of that out. So it's really interesting kind of like plays there for scheduling. Yeah. Secondary markets. It's fascinating, yeah. man. Uh, it's, uh, again, and it's uh, going back to like the ruthless capitalism that just proves it. If people are going to be able to pay Apple and other <laughs> chip makers to, to move back in line, it's pretty crazy. Yeah. You know, if it makes sense for Apple, then maybe they would do it. But the amount of money that Apple makes on their new iPhone launch is so astronomical that the price would have to be insane right for them to agree to do that so and they have preferential treatment at, at tsmc as does uh amd so i mean if they don't want to do it they wouldn't do it so i mean but that kind of stuff does happen i'm not saying explicitly with apple or amd but before somebody would go spin up a foundry and spend several dozens of billions of dollars doing that it's more likely that they would pay one of these big companies to jump the line yeah, that's one thing. I because again, the, you, the sunk cost of getting one of these spun up and doing it correctly is so large that it is a huge risk. And that's when I hear Trump and the politicians throw around infrastructure spending. That's always something that's popping into my mind. Like, yeah, for it, sure. I mean, <laughs> infrastructure here is like going to shit, right? So, yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah, we live in weird times. You were you're talking about leaving where you're uh where you're at why do you want to leave there uh, you know it's just a culture thing i guess the first time i moved to boston i uh got smacked in the face by the culture here that's for sure when people come to boston it's mostly to like you know work and, or be a part of something cool and new so people are mostly inward focused and so you know in texas if somebody doesn't hold the door open for you when you're walking through like it's a big deal kind of thing. I can still remember the first time my dad came. <laughs> my dad is the most Texas Texan you've ever seen. I took him to this really nice park and we were sitting there chatting and a guy walked by in a shirt that he liked and my dad said, Hey man, that's a cool shirt. And the guy just kind of nodded his head real gently. He didn't say anything and just kind of nodded and kept on walking. My dad almost jumped up and confronted the guy. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's, that's just how they are here, man. They're just kind of cold people. It's, it's not, he's not trying to be, you know, he's not trying to be mean to you or whatever. He's just, just how people are. He was like, that's rude, man. If I give you a compliment, you're supposed to say thank you. And I was like, okay, I, I know, but that's not how they work here. So it's, uh, I can tell you that I've worked harder in Boston than anywhere else, but, um, I also like the people in Texas and the food too is really great in Texas. So um, I'm ready to get back to my nice fat people. I was, <laughs> <laughs> was going to say Texas barbecue is, uh, I'm trying right, to think man. of it better than Dunkin' Donuts, which is oh, a yeah. Boston staple food. Um, right. Yeah. I'm from Philadelphia. And uh, so I, I understand. I know that's a happy Sorry medium for, there. Yeah. It was still abrasive Northeast people in Philadelphia, but I actually, sure. uh, 
you know, when I was like 10, my family moved to Charleston, South Carolina, and that was a culture shock for me. Oh, like yeah. Having to say, yes, ma'am, yes, sir. That's right. Uh, <laughs> going, going to Cotillion, learning how to eat properly and, mm. and have good manners was, uh, I was, um, I was uh, sort of apprehensive and uh, rebelled against it at first, but eventually after living there for four years, you, you, you succumb to the culture and you end up saying yes, ma'am, and yes, sir. And I'm actually very happy uh, that I spent that time down there. I think it's paid off dividends in the long run. Being polite is hold the door. We say that on this podcast a lot, actually. Just hold the door. Be a <laughs> yeah, good person. That's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's probably what I'm looking forward to most for sure. Hey, dude, we're like an hour and five minutes in. I don't want to take up too much of your time on this this quarantine afternoon on this Thursday. <laughs> um, let's end it on like, what are you most excited about in the in the mining industry right now? Um, I'm excited is, for the having man. I'll tell you, I think a lot of people are going to get wrecked, and we are well positioned to take advantage of what I hope is an upcoming difficulty drop. We had a big difficulty drop a couple weeks ago, and I was super excited. And we mined. I mean that boosted our production by 20%, something like that. And I'm hoping that the price continues to stay low. And then at the halving, a ton of people had to turn off and they sell and they have to push the price lower, which means even more people have to turn off. And because my cost of production right now is so low, I feel very confident that we're one of the lowest producers, which makes me well positioned to take advantage of a huge difficulty drop. So that's what I'm most forward looking to for sure. Yeah, well, good. That's fucking happy for you, man. Because uh, <laughs> we're gonna see, we're gonna see all these S nines fall off. Um, oh, finally, right? God. Well, maybe yeah. If you don't mind answering this question too, like, what is the like? How close are we to like commodified A six? Like, S nine's been running for what almost six years now. I mean, a lot of them fell off, man. I w- I do know that you can buy. Uh, there was a an offer on secondary market last week, eleven thousand S nines for forty bucks each. That's crazy, right? Crazy, crazy. So I think they're but, they're coming off now, man. But like, how long do the S seventeens, the M twenty S's, the M thirty S's like? Do you do you see them having a longer life cycle than the S nines? Well, yeah, because the the problem is you can't go much lower. I mean, Bitmain's having trouble with their five nanometer stuff. Cheetah miners having trouble with their five nanometer stuff. Five nanometer Samsung process notes super painful. And it's not like the early days, right? You go from you could take the same design from sixty-five nanometer to twenty-four, and you have almost tripled your efficiency. That's not the case anymore. So we are smack dab up against Moore's law at this point. And you know what we're doing is we we have all custom firmware that we've developed to try to push things a little bit further. Um, we do some some special unique things, but uh, I think that the, the the life cycle of gear that's coming out now will be longer than any before, just because there's no more room to go down on process node and and the kind of tricks you can pull on the silicon level are few and far between now. So, um, you know, I don't think there's a lot a lot of room to develop something that's just so much better that it would warrant me to expend that amount of capex. So do you think this makes mining more competitive going forward? Hell yeah. So now yeah. power is going to be way more important going forward because you, you just can't like change your cost production by upgrading anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that I don't know and you. customized firmware for sure. 
I'm gonna annoy you with like another question. Like, how does this change like energy markets? Right? Like, is it just gonna drive crazy innovations and? Well, I mean, like, it weird. depends what country, right? I mean, let's say Sweden, for example. Sweden is its own grid. It doesn't connect to the rest of the EU, and they have issues, right? Because Sweden, nobody lives there. There's a crap load of power there. So, I mean, energy trading isn't super liquid because they're not all connected. All the markets aren't connected, so you just can't like do that super easily so i mean the the i don't think it changes the dynamic of energy markets as much as it changes where infrastructure gets placed i mean there's a big op being built right now in the middle of nowhere kazakhstan and that's going to help people be employed that's going to build infrastructure around that place you know streets roads uh you know hotels this kind of stuff i think that's what you'll start to see these these new kind of places that were severely underserved hopefully getting served by a new mining ops and taking advantage of lower pricing so yeah that's the uh the mining ops create little local hub economies around the world thesis it seems like it's coming coming true yeah uh, it can be super cool yeah well marshall really appreciate your time this afternoon i know we both got to get back to daddy daycare <laughs> um i hope you i hope you uh keep your sanity uh, with the gaming and stuff like that. I know, I know it's a struggle these days. So I'm, I'm trying to do it myself. Um, so I really appreciate you taking some time to do this and, um, good luck at the having man. Pump hey, thanks so much, man. Thanks for having me on and, uh, we'll talk soon. All right. Sounds good, man. Peace and love freaks.